All right, so let's just a little bit of review. Um, last week we hit the interpreter's house, and we suggested the interpreter's house is is largely um, a picture of the Holy Spirit, a young Christian being instructed through the Holy Spirit, various means, right? You know, believers, pastors in the church. And Bunyan is suggesting um, seven different stops on the way in this discipleship program, so to speak. So we saw the portrait of the minister, right, who's got the the best of books in his hands, the law of truth in his mouth. Um, He's looking to Christ. He's pleading with sinners. The world's behind his back. He's got the crown of glory. He's thinking about, you know, the future. And then we um, saw the dusty parlor, right? So we were reminded of the law and the gospel, the distinction between promise and command, and how we need to keep both the bitter and sweet together. And then we also talked about passion and purity, the image of the two children. And, um, and we're, we want to be more like, which one? Passion or, pure, or, uh, passion or patience? We want to be more like patience, but we realize that passion is still kind of clinging on. So, um, w- and that's what leads us to the firewall. We're reminded that the devil's trying to put out the fire, but he can't figure out why it's not going out because, hey, Alan, you made it. All right. I was praying you get out of bed. All right. So, uh, so Jesus is feeding the oil behind the wall, right? So it's, that's what keeps our, sal- our salvation going, which brought us to the, the palace, uh, stately palace that we must, through many persecutions, enter in, right? You have the man fighting through to get there. And then we've also got the man in the iron cage, that scary image that reminds us that if we just put the, allow the rain to be on our lust, that it can lead us to a place of deception where we can get, a person can get to where they don't think they can even get out of the cage. And we're left to wonder whether this person's a true believer or not a true believer. And then we also talked about the dream, the day of the Lord dream, right? So those, those were the items in the house of the interpreter. And then today, as we come out of the house of the interpreter, uh, we're going to kind of, we're going to be moving on the way of salvation to the cross. We'll spend some time talking about the cross. As we move away from the cross, uh, Christians are going to come into contact with at least three groups of pretenders and uh, that are doing different things. One group of pretenders is just stationary. Another group of pretenders is going along the way, looking like they're true believers, and the other group of pretenders are actually running back away from um, the palace beautiful, which is what we'll talk about at the end, which represents the church. And so that's basically what we're going to cover today. So let's let's get into it. Let's talk about, first of all, the wall called salvation. This is section 30, if you're looking at the Ken Pulse. By the way, there are uh, two more binders back there. Those are free. Um, so you can, those are, that's the full Ken Pulse text that we've been given permission to print. So if anybody wants, if you're tired of reading your stuff online and you want a full binder, um, you can take one of those binders back there. And so the, uh, the wall called salvation, um, let's just go ahead and re- I'm going to read a little bit from here. So then interpreter uh, said, the comforter be always with you, good Christian, to guide you. Uh, in the way that leads to the city. So Christian went on his way. And then he, he says, Here I have seen things rare and profitable, pleasant and dreadful. And then he says, uh, Let me continue to think on them, is kind of a summary of what he says. And so he gets on this way, and he's been reminded of bittersweet, dreadful, and pleasant. And he's going to continue to think about these things. He's going to continue to preach the gospel 
to himself, uh, so to speak. Now, let's just remember, by the way, as Christian gets on this path of salvation, let's just remember that this is an allegory. So all the things that we're seeing are meant to be pictures of salvation, and that this is, Bunyan is telling us about Christian's journey. And, and as we're going to see, his journey is not exactly the same as Faithful's journey or Hopeful's journey or even Christiana's journey when we get to part two. And so it's good to remember that, that it's not like we, this is some sort of like monopoly game where everything just rolls right in order for everybody. Um, people are going to experience these different aspects of the doctrine of salvation in different ways. Um, when you look, read part two, when Christiana uh, <clears throat> awakens to her soul, she's called Christiana right out the gate, even when she's in the city of destruction, which indicates that her she's regenerated right there. And then when she gets to the gate, she gets a view of the cross right away. Christian doesn't really get a full view of the cross till later, even after the house of the interpreter. It doesn't mean he doesn't know anything about the cross, but there's some grander revelation of the cross that comes on the other side of the house of the interpreter. So we want to keep that in mind as, as we're going through the allegory. So, um, so he's preaching the gospel to himself, and then the text goes on and says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced in on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. And then he's trying to run, but it's with great difficulty because he still has the burden. It's very interesting that at the beginning of this journey, right out of the house, uh, interpreter's house, there's this, this pretty, it feels like a pretty high wall on each side of the way that's just pinning Christian in. And as you keep track with the story, it's not like that wall stays there. Right, Because later on, he is going to get off the path into um, the Doubting Castle, right? But early on, as a young believer in his walk, he's just hedged in. And it kind of reminds me of certain passages in, in our Old Testament. One of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, Hosea 2, where it says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. The idea is, is, is the Lord is saying to Israel, I'm going to hedge you in where you can't go back to your idolatrous lovers, and I'm going to make you go towards me. And, and, and this is, I don't know about you, but I remember just being a brand new young believer, and it just felt like everything fell on my lap. I'd be having my devotions, and, and then I'd come to church, and the pastor would be preaching exactly what I was reading that week, or there'd be something that just jumped out to me, and it was just like I was getting spoon-fed. At least, you know, that was my experience. Uh, later, in Isaiah 35a speaks of the highway that shall be there. It'll be a highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass. But whoever walks that road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Praise the Lord for us fools. So you've got this highway of holiness, um, not, you know, that's, that's there. It's a path for us. But then in Isaiah 30, verse 21, you have this, uh, this picture of your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it um, whenever you turn to the right hand or to the left. Uh, the, speaking of these children that didn't want to hear their teachers, but then later the Spirit helps them hear their teachers. And it, the image is almost like the Holy Spirit's walking behind you saying, no, go this way, no, go that way. And so there seems to be 
on the page of Scripture, and you can check this out for yourself, there does seem to be a sense in which the Lord will kind of hem in young believers, and then as they mature and get more and more familiar with hearing the voice of the shepherd, the Spirit just kind of walking behind you and saying, go this way, go that way, uh, obviously through his word and through his people. And... Um, and he even will orchestrate and allow us to get off the path and walk off the path, as we're going to see in the allegory later. But that takes us to number 31, section 31, Christian arrives at the cross. And, um, and we see here, as he comes up to this hill, there's the cross that he just keeps looking at. And then down below, there's a sepulcher. And uh, children, what's a sepulcher? Tomb, that's right. Yeah, I heard that, heard that voice. It's a tomb. And so as he comes in to engage the cross, just all by itself, the burden that he's been carrying that he can't get off, it just falls off, rolls down the hill, goes into the tomb, never to be seen again. Doesn't mean that Christian isn't going to have struggles, but now the burden of a sin that has been brought on by a realization of coming wrath has been removed from his back. And now he's able to go in freedom. It's kind of like what we see in Colossians 2.12, that we are buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive. Dead in trespasses. If we really understand who we are in Christ, We are dead in our trespasses. Those are now gone. They are not held against us anymore. God has taken them and thrown them into the sea. He doesn't remember them against us anymore. And and that's an important truth for us to grab onto. It doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. We're going to talk about that. But what it does mean is that our sins are not remembered against us anymore. And so that's the experience that he has He has a merry heart. He feels this rest and this life. And he keeps looking and wonder and and is just bewildered at how it is that a sight of the cross would ease him of such a burden. The springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. I just love that, the way that's described. And um, and then you have these three shining ones that appear, which... um, uh, are a representation of the Trinity and, and, and the triune God being involved in our salvation. And what happens is uh, the, the shining ones, one of them says, your sins are forgiven, right? That's a great pronouncement. Um, the other one, which is almost certainly represents Christ, gives the uh, Christian a uh, new raiment, takes off his rags of his sinfulness, right? And gives him now clothed, he's now clothed in righteousness, And then the third one puts a seal on his forehead and gives him a roll. So now you have the Holy Spirit that is sealing him and then giving him a roll, which represents his assurance of salvation and the assurance uh, that he'll enter into the next life. That's going to be very important as we move forward in our narrative. And um, and again, Bunyan, I don't know. uh, Unfortunately, the versions I had you guys buy doesn't put in the scripture verse in the parentheses that Bunyan has in his original. And so most of these verses that we're talking about are kind of in the original, at least in parentheses, where Bunyan's telling you 
this is what I'm thinking about from Scripture when I write this part of the allegory. That's the one thing I don't like about the versions I had you guys buy. Um, but you, you could go online and look at other versions where it'll show you in parentheses the exact Scripture passages. And some of those passages that Bunyan's referring to are uh, Zechariah 12, um, you know, that talks about they will look on me whom they have pierced. You've also got like as far as the the mark on the forehead that comes from Ezekiel 9, Revelation 7, which we've looked at with Pastor Milton. Ephesians 1, 13, being sealed by the Spirit. And I love Zechariah 3. That's, again, another one of my favorite passages that talks about the filthy garments being taken off of Joshua, the high priest, and him being dressed in these uh, robes of righteousness, as it were. All right, so this is, this is a high point of our narrative. We now have come to the cross and you've got Christian who's got this new garb, and so he moves forward, and so everything's just going to be dandy from this point on, right? No more sin, no more trials. It's just going to be like Candyland. Um, well, wait a second. Candyland has some bad characters in it, and that's what we're going to have here too, is as we're moving through <clears throat> right away. He's not even a few paces, it seems, from the cross, when we come upon a simple sloth and presumption. So let's talk about those guys. Christian tries to give them some counsel. He says, awake, come away. Uh, be willing also, and I will help you off with your irons. He also told them, if he that goes about like a roaring lion comes by, you will certainly become prey to his teeth. So he comes across these three individuals. He wants to help them. He's just been released from his burden. He wants to help these guys out of their irons, their chains. And how do they respond? Well, Simple says, I don't see any danger. So he doesn't heed the warning. Proverbs says, how long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? They hate knowledge. Sloth says, oh, just for a little more sleep. A uh, little sleep, a little folding of the hands, and your prowler will come upon you like an armed man. And then presumption says, every vat must stand upon its own bottom. What does that mean? Um, basically, it's, uh, I'll stand on my own two feet, thank you. I don't need your help. A vat would be like, you know, a big tub you, know, you put liquid in or store stuff in. And... Um, so Bunyan has a note in his, uh, in his margin where he says, There is no persuasion that will do if God openeth not the eye. So here Christian's trying to persuade these guys to wake up, and if God doesn't open their eyes, there's nothing that's going to happen. And so really sad thing is, is, is these three stay in their stupor, and then we find out in part two, that when Christian com Christiana comes by them, they've actually been hung by their irons. So Bunyan's uh, tale, it's, it's, not, uh, a sun it's not necessarily a kindergarten story. This, sometimes it reads a little bit like a, uh, what's that old spooky guy from around the same time period? What is it, Katie? The shiver, the guy who wrote about the shiver? What is it? The Grimm's, oh, Grimm's brother. Sometimes Bunyan's is a little bit like a Grimm's brother tale. It, you know, you're looking at sloths, simple and presumption, and it seems kind of almost humorous. And then the next 
part, you find out they're actually been hung up. They're dead. And, um, and so this is definitely meant to, to shock us. Uh, Ken Paul says on page 102 that men can die in their sins in such proximity to the gospel with the means of grace and the help of God's people so near should cause us to be sober-minded, watchful, and prayerful. It's, it's a sad thing to think about, and it's, it's not at all uncommon. Um, you know, the, the church, the gospel draws all kinds of people, and there are people that will come right up to the wicket gate and not come in. They'll come in and hear the gospel. We have, we have people right here at Cornerstone. I won't name them, but I, you know, there's some people I'm pretty sure they're here hearing the gospel on a regular basis, but they have not repented of their sins, and they have not called on Christ, and yet they hear the warnings and the promises every week. And we've seen people at Cornerstone go to their doom Uh, die in their sins and there was no hope that they repented and so they ended their lives as far as we know like simple sloth and presumption and that's meant to be a warning to us just like we see the man in the iron cage in the day of the lord that's not going to give you the amperage to go out and do battle with your sins but it is a warning to get you to turn to the gospel right that's something that'll cause the dust to come up and you'll choke on it and then we need to get that water in there to give us the power. So that brings us to a second group. So that's our first pretender, so to speak. These first pretenders are fine being in the proximity of the cross. They just don't want to move. They're, they're, they're not going to call upon Christ for their righteousness. They're not going to repent of their sins. One of the lessons we don't want to walk away with this is say, oh, okay, so that means if I've got any sin of slothfulness or if I'm ever simple-minded, then I'm toast. Well, we'll talk about that here in a moment. If that's true, then Christians also toast. Um, But anybody who's just not making, falling upon Christ's works, that's not confessing their sins and won't call upon the Lord for forgiveness... Yeah, that's, that's bad news to show up week after week and not repent. Let's talk about 33, formalist hypocrisy, this nether set of pretenders. <clears throat> so how do these guys get in the way? How do they get on to the, the way that Christian's on? Yeah, they jump over a wall. And that brings to mind John chapter 10, where Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, who does not enter by the sheepfold, Enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way. The same is a the same is a thief and a robber. We have to enter through the narrow gate. So this is in part of our allegory. These are people that haven't come in through Christ. They're leaping over, trying to get in without Christ. And these people can't possibly be believers if they've come in without Christ. And yet they have the form of religion, right? So you got formalists and hypocrisy they say that they've been born in the land of vain glory and they're going up for praise to mount zion they want to go up to mount zion to get praise for themselves and uh, it reminds us of various passages in the new testament second timothy 3 5 they have a form of godliness but denying its power we're told to avoid such people this is all over the church. People that kind of are, can go through the forms of religion, 
um, and yet there's really no focus on Christ. They haven't, they're not seeing their sins in the light of the cross, and then they're not going to the cross for forgiveness of sins. Um, this is one of the dangers that people that kind of grow up in the church, all these Christians that grow up in the church, they eventually have to kind of do battle with this issue because nobody comes into, into Christ merely on the, uh, the coattails of their parents, right? And, and as we're teaching our kids, we want to protect our kids when they're young, and so we teach them the Word of God, and we try not to let them watch bad movies, and we tell them not to get tattoos and all this kind of stuff. And then so <clears throat> they initially grow up before they're converted with, man, if I just don't have tattoos and if I get up and do my daily devotions every day and if I obey mom and dad, then I'm good. And then suddenly they realize, well, hopefully they realize that ain't going to do it. Um, all of us have to come to grips with our own sin. <clears throat> and so that's why, you know, Matthew fifteen seven, Jesus talks about the hypocrites. These people honor me with my, their lips, but their heart's far from me. Uh, Paul says, our works, no matter how great the zeal and devotion, can never save us. There is no salvation apart from Christ, uh, faith in Christ and repentance from sin. The solution for people that have a form and are just in hypocrisy is not to get better. The solution is to see how sinful they are, even in their good works, and to call upon Christ. Um, I love what Tim Keller has to say. You know, he talks about the prodigal. I think, um, yeah, I think he, it's Tim Keller who talks about the prodigal son. That um, really all of us are either the lost brother or the older brother. All of us are the younger brother. We kind of go off into our sin, or we're the older brother and we're judging everybody. And truth be told, as we go back and forth between the two all the time, even after we're born again, and so. Um, so we have to constantly be looking to Christ for both our licentiousness and our legalism. Um, we are just, yeah, it just dwells in us. And, uh, and even though that's forgiven once we come to the cross, we keep dipping back into it. And, and I, I don't want to like bum you guys out or anything, but it doesn't completely go away until you die, right? <laughs> Uh, what is it? I think it's uh, Martin Luther or maybe Calvin said that sin is kind of like a man's beard. You shave in the morning and then you got a five o'clock shadow and the beard doesn't stop growing until the earth is over your body. That's when the beard stops growing. The good news is, is we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ throughout our life and we keep looking to him. So we got formalists and hypocrisy. These guys they start really making fun of Christian. That brings us to the coat of rags. Uh, and, and what is it that they're really picking on Christian about? Is they're picking on him about his being dressed in the righteousness of Christ. They look at his coat and they're like, we've got religion. We've got our form. Uh, we've got our good works. Here's all the things that we do. What do you have? You're dressed in this coat to cover your shame and nakedness. How silly is that? And, um, but Christian actually glories in his coat. They're uh, dressed in their own works and deeds. Christian is dressed in the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
like the prodigal, he has had his rags stripped off and he's been given the best robe, Isaiah 64. And, um, and, but remember, he also points out that he's got a few other things. He's got the mark on his forehead. He's also got the roll. Uh, Ken Pohl says on 108, formalists and hypocrisy lack these things. They are self-clothed, self-sealed, and self-confident. They do not value the gifts of Christ bestowed at the cross because they do not value Christ as their only hope. They miss the gate, representing Christ himself offered in the gospel, and have resorted to their own devices to enter the way. So Christian tells them plainly that attempts to keep the law and ordinances cannot save them. We can never be justified by our works. And so let's, I, I think this is in your notes. Let's look at Galatians 2.16. I just want to read this real quickly that where Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And it's just really hard for us to get our minds around. We are, by nature, we're just closet Catholics. We just always want to go back to Rome and think that, oh, it's all, you know what? I love the fact that Jesus has given me a little bit of righteousness in a paper bag. I'll take that. And then I'm going to move on to my own righteousness. And we're having to repent of that stuff every day. Every day, you got to get out of bed, and i got to get out of bed and say, it is all about imputed righteousness. It is all about what he has done. Because truth be told, like I love what John MacArthur said a couple weeks ago, if if I could lose my salvation, I would. If God just pulled back just for a second and just let me go my own way, and if he didn't grant me the imputed righteousness of Christ, you would all be toast. I would be toast. Look what happened to Hezekiah, 1 Chronicles 32, 31. Check it out sometime. Hezekiah just came off of this incredible miracle where he's been, his life's been extended. And even the shadow went backward as a sign to show him that. And then it says in thir- chapter, verse 31, God wanted to show him his own heart that there's still, I'm kind of paraphrasing, there's still some pride issues in Hezekiah. So the Lord withdrew just a little bit to show him his heart. And what does Hezekiah do? It's like he took stupid pills. He has the Babylonian royalty come in, and he shows them all of his armory, all of his wealth, just says, look at the whole thing. Isaiah comes a little while later and says, what did you show them? He says, everything. And I don't even think this required a prophecy, but Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, you're going to be attacked and going down. It's like, why did one of the best kings in the Old Testament, righteous and wise, suddenly take stupid pills? Because God just pulled his hand back just a little bit. And then Hezekiah just does the dumbest things. And what we see is God, even this is even part of his kindness. He works all things together for our good, right? Sometimes he'll withdraw just a little bit of his influence to help show us what's really in us. And then we're like, oh, and we find ourselves wanting to cling and cry out. Part two of uh, Christiana's story, they see that same thing. In fact, Mercy's like, Lord, why don't you just keep us away from the trials? Why do you allow the dogs to come bark? And the Lord says, 
because if I just kept the dogs away, you guys would never cry out to me, but I let the dogs come, and then you cry out, and then you're more dependent upon me. And that's part of the Lord's wisdom in even allowing us to go through these periods where we sometimes feel the Lord is distant. And so that's part of this whole thing. Later, Ken Paul says, Christian knows that both joys and trials await him. He continues on his pilgrimage, sometimes sighing, sometimes comfortably. That's a great description of the Christian life, and it's one of the reasons why I love this book. It's not like Christians just happy, clappy all the time. I've got Jesus down in my heart, down in my heart. It's like sometimes he's sighing, and sometimes he's comfortable, right? It's like Paul says, I know how to abase and to abound. And, uh, but he's looking at the promises of God and, um, and so on. Let's talk about the hill difficulty, what? Why is the Lord putting the hill difficulty right in the middle of the path? Because he loves us. And so, anybody remember what's at the bottom of the hill before he starts going up? What's at the very bottom? Say it again. Ah, that's on the other side. That's good. Before he goes up the hill, what does he come up on before the hill? Somebody say Spring. Spring, yeah, so there's a spring of water. So before he get, actually gets to the hill of difficulty, he gets a nice fresh draft of water, living water. The Holy Spirit is blessing him, probably with some encouragement from the Word of God. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, he's moving up this, this hill. And, uh, and formalists and hypocrisy, they see the hill of difficulty and they're like, we ain't doing that. No way. We're, uh, one's going to go to the left to danger. The other one's going to go to the right to destruction. And uh, Proverbs fourteen twelve, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the way is the end of death. And that's unfortunately what happens to these guys. Grim's brother tale, cover your children's eyes. Um, this does not go well with these guys. Uh, but Bunyan, I mean, a Christian decides he's going to go ahead and keep uh, going up. Uh, let's read, I'm not sure where it is in your notes, but I've got a pretty lengthy quote here from John Bunyan. Do you guys see that on the saints' knowledge? So he says, there are heights also that build up themselves in us. These high things, therefore, are said to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and do oftentimes more plague, afflict, and frighten Christian men and women than anything besides it is from these that our faith and spiritual understanding of God and his Christ is opposed and contradicted. And from these also that we are so inclined to swerve from right doctrine into destructive opinions. Tis from these that we are so easily persuaded to call into question our former experience of the goodness of God towards us. And from these that our minds are so often clouded and darkened that we cannot see afar off. Have you ever been there where you just forget the goodness of God? Or maybe you remember it, but you're like, oh, you know what? That probably wasn't the real deal. That probably wasn't really God's goodness. Maybe God was just kind of, maybe it was just his common grace on me who's not really converted. But he's just kind of, because God's a nice guy and he'll even be kind to his enemies. And I'm still in the enemy's camp. These would betray us to the hand of fallen angels and men, nor should we by any means help or deliver ourselves were it not for one that is higher. 
These are the dark mountains at which our feet would certainly stumble and upon which we should fall were it not for one who can leap and skip over these mountains of division and come to us. I love that image at the end. That's straight out of Song of Solomon. That Christ is able to leap over the mountains and come to our deliverance even when we're having these dark doubts and the mountains just kind of cloud things up and, we, and we're having trouble seeing. Um, Christian goes up the hill of difficulty and it's very hard and, and no doubt you guys, we've all, I'm sure, here been through some very, very difficult things that get us to question and if it were all left up to us, if Christ wasn't behind the wall feeding the oil, it wouldn't happen. It'd be over. But Praise the Lord, your salvation, my salvation doesn't depend ultimately on us. It depends upon him who holds us fast. We'll talk more about that holding fast a little bit later. About halfway up, Christian gets a nice reprieve. He comes to a pleasant arbor, which represents probably like a word of grace or a timely word that's spoken by a brother or a sister. Maybe there's a passage of scripture that just especially gives you rest in a time of difficulty. Um, maybe it comes out of a sermon or a song. You're just driving down the road, feeling the weight of your sin and the trials, and the Lord just brings you to this pleasant arbor and uh, trees and, and this garden area to rest. And um, I don't know what passages in your life, that I've, I've got a lot of passages that I go back to that, at different points, it's like the Lord just kind of brought this passage into my life to give me comfort. I remember uh, Matthew 18, uh, 14, even so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I'm like, I'm going to perish. The other shoe's going to fall, and he's just going to toast me. And then it's like the Lord just reminded me, it's not my will that one of these little ones should perish. You're one of my little ones. I remember Ephesians 5, 1. I couldn't even get past the first three words. You know, where it just basically says, um, talks about his dearly beloved. Therefore, as the dearly beloved of God, and as it's like, that's it. That's all I needed to hear. It's like the spirit just like impressed that on my heart. When I wasn't feeling like the dearly beloved of God, I'm just again waiting for the fist to come down, the consequences of my sin. <clears throat> and he calls me the dearly beloved. Or like the love of Christ compels us. His love for me, not my love for him. Or what about the fact that I'm in the, the grip of Christ and the Father simultaneously and the Father and the Son are one and we are unsnatchable. What about the fact that, you know, John 15, 9 says, uh, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. That's crazy. Those are some of the passages that have just been a great blessing to me. I'm sure you have them yourself. Recently, this last, this last week in preparing for this lesson, I was looking at Philippians 3.12, and I just have never remember seeing Paul say, I have been laid hold of by Christ. It's within that passage where he says, I press forward to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And literally, when you look at the Greek, not that I'm Mr. Greek scholar, but you go to Bible Hub, right? You know, and you look at the interlinear, because I've forgotten a lot of my Greek. It just, it it's literally says, I have been laid hold of by Christ. That's a crazy thought, that he lays hold of us. And I was telling my son Samuel, it's like, 
Sam, it's almost like you were running in these high weeds towards a cliff, and then you just run right over the cliff with your sin, and Jesus just lassoes you with a rope, and he starts pulling you up. And then you're so excited to be captured and being pulled up as, as you're starting to pull yourself up and using your feet, but whose strength is primary? And my, my son got it. He says, Christ. And it's like, yeah, we're pressing forward, but really, who's got us? Who's the one that's pulling us? It's Jesus. And to me, these types of arbors are just a great encouragement to me personally. And so Christian, he gets there and he gets the rest. But just like a lot of us, what does he do? It's like he drinks in the rest, but then the rest turns into spiritual lethargy. And he's right there with sloth. Now, let me ask you a question. Him falling asleep in the Pleasant Harbor and then losing his role... Is this God telling us, you guys don't sleep? Sleeping is sinful. If you sleep more than four hours a night, boy, I, you know, woe is you. Is that what he's saying? No, not at all. Again, this is an allegory. We're talking about spiritual sleep. We're talking about you're falling asleep spiritually. You're not being watchful. Um, you've kind of gotten comfortable spiritually. And you're not on the watch anymore. And, um, and then his role falls out. And we'll, let's see what happens with that. So you look at the, the next, the final group of pretenders come by. So remember, sloth and simple and presumption, they're stationary. Formalists and hypocrisy, they're actually moving, but they move to their death. Uh, timorous and mistrust are going the other way. And so these guys come along, they're running the other way. We'll give you kind of a summary here, but they've seen these two lions, and they're scared. We'll find out later. These two lions represent, in Bunyan's day, the civil government and the state church. The civil government's like passing laws against Christians preaching the gospel, and the state church is right there in cahoots. And they're just there to scare true saints and try to keep them out of the true church of God. And... um you know, Christian can't see that they've actually got chains on them. But Timorous and uh, Mistrust, they don't even get close enough to check that out. They're like, I'm out of here. Um, I am not going to go head-to-head with the state or the state church and, uh, and suffer for Christ. I'm running in the other direction. And this kind of freaks Christian out a little bit. He's, uh, he's, he's also worried uh, he, 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 get, he sits there and he starts to deliberate. He's like, wait a second. If I go back to the city of destruction, what does that mean? That's the city of destruction. I can't go back there. If I go forward, there's fear of death, but there's also hope of the celestial city. So as I weigh out the options, destruction, death, celestial city, I'm going that way. And so he decides to keep moving forward, even though he is afraid of what mistrust and timorous have just pronounced to him. And to give himself some comfort, he, he gets into his coat to pull that roll back out to comfort himself. And suddenly he's like, oh, man, it's like, you know, Bilbo can't find the ring. It's um, only this is positive, right? And um, he's like, where is it? And so suddenly he's lost his role. And I'm going to have to speed us up because we've got five minutes. 
And so he's, he suddenly realizes it's probably back where I slept, the slugger that I was. And, uh, and so then he has to retrace his steps back downhill, knowing that every step downhill is going to be another step back uphill. I don't know if you guys hike, but I've done that where you've missed your trail. I did that when we were climbing Mount Wilson, and we got about a mile off track downhill and I was doing good to that point but once we realized we were going the wrong way and we had to come back another mile and this was a 17 mile hike uh it wasn't fun I did we, we were pretty upset at ourselves and then I started getting cramps and I don't like bananas but I had to eat a banana and um so that's what Christian has to do and so he goes back and he's berating himself, and he gets back to the arbor. This time, it's not so fun. He's not so excited about being there at the Pleasant Arbor. But he looks down, and what does he find? His roll. Now, remember, the roll represents what? Is this his salvation? Has he lost his salvation? What does he still have on his forehead? He still has a seal of the Holy Spirit. What is he still wearing? His code of righteousness. He's still got the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's still got a seal on his forehead, but he's lost the role. And the role is his assurance of salvation and entrance into heaven. The assurance that he'll get there. And part of what Bunyan is trying to teach us comes right out of the confessions of his time. Uh, also, 1689 uh, Baptist Confession. Basically, that true believers can never lose their salvation. We're not going to, you don't suddenly lose the seal or lose your code of righteousness. People that are circumcised of heart don't uh, suddenly become uncircumcised again. You don't see anywhere where the justified get unjustified. Jesus doesn't name Simon Peter and then say, ah, I take that back. You're Simon again, right? No, but a true believer can lose assurance or can start to fall into doubts about um, their salvation. You guys can read this on your own, but I'll, I will mention one passage of Scripture, 1 John three eighteen and following. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So our love and the fruit of the gospel grants us a, 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 an assurance. But then verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, then forget it. It's over. Is that what he says? No. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. What's he saying? Well, is it better to have your heart condemning you or better to have your heart not condemning you? It's better to have your heart not condemn you, right? Because that gives you confidence. But if your heart does condemn you, God's greater than your heart. And so this is just one of many passages that demonstrates that a believer can lose some sense of their assurance and start to fall into doubts about their standing, uh, but that doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. Well, we can talk more about that later. Um, we're kind of we're bumping up against time here. So all, I think part of the, the lessons here that we want, some of the takeaways we want to have here 
is as, as Christian moves from the cross, he's been granted a seal and a righteousness and a role. And yet, when he moves out into life, it doesn't mean that he does, doesn't hit trials. He's already been told in the house of the interpreter he's going to hit trials. And he's going to see people that are pretenders. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come across, sometimes I, when I think of people that have actually encouraged me in my faith and have since fallen away and abandoned the faith, that's discouraging. There was a guy that was instrumental in me coming to know Christ. I'd never met him, but it was a guy named Mike Warnke that turned out to be a complete and total fraud. This guy was a liar. Everything, he just completely made it up. And yet there were things that he said that were encouraging to me before I came to know Christ. And what do I do with that? Well, am I looking to him or am I looking to Christ? I'm looking to Christ. Am I looking to John MacArthur or am I looking to Christ? Am I looking to R.C. Sproul Jr. or am I looking to Christ? Am I looking to Joshua Harris or Ravi Zacharias or am I looking to Christ? You guys looking to Pastor Milton or are you guys looking to Christ? We're looking to Christ. And the fact is, is the best believers are going to disappoint you. Just read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. See some really awesome kings who all disappoint. We're looking to Christ. He is the one hero. You know, there's really one who wins the race. You know, we're all in this race, but there's only one winner. And the winner is Christ. And everybody in Christ also gets the glory. But there's one winner. Let's keep our eyes on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the encouragement from our brother John Bunyan, who is in your presence right now with you. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for the wisdom. We know that these are just the words of a man. We need to compare this with Scripture. But we thank you that he's given us so much Scripture and given us wonderful images to help these Scriptures uh, stick to us like burrs. We pray, Father that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We not get discouraged by pretenders that are stationary or going along in, to destruction and, and, uh, or those that are running back. May we be those that keep going forward. And, uh, Lord, that we would lay a hold of you as you have laid a hold of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.